Good morning, Strong Tower. Good, morning. good to see you guys. My name is Jeff Skipper. Uh, I'm one of the pastors in our network. I'm from over at Redeemer City Church in Warner Haven, uh, and I'm so glad to be with you this morning. Uh, I think it's been probably close to five years since I came and preached here, so uh, it's good to be back. Um, if you didn't know, you have the probably the most fun and best worship service in the network, if, if not more. So, I mean, just know that if you haven't visited around. I know my kids, they couldn't come this morning, but they always love coming to this church. And so it's great to be with you guys. Awesome job, worship team. Uh, and everybody else. So, uh, yeah, good morning. If you uh, haven't been uh, with, I say us, because we're going through the same series in the network, but, but uh, I believe Strong Tower has been going through Hebrews 11, and it's a chapter about faith. If you open your Bibles, if you have one on your phone, wherever that may be, if you can find Hebrews 11, uh, you'll see this uh, little phrase repeated all the way through the chapter, where it just keeps saying, by faith, by faith. I mean, you don't have to go to Bible school or seminary to find out what the chapter is about, all right? It's, it's about faith, okay? And really, the author, even though this is in the New Testament, he's really going through the Old Testament. When you read Hebrews 11, you'll see all these Old Testament stories, and he's writing to a group of people uh, that he's trying to encourage and challenge them, because guess what? They're losing heart. Uh, can you relate to that? Even 2,000 years later, right? We can be tempted to lose heart uh, on our journey of faith and in this fallen world. We can relate to the people being written to here, the Hebrews, as we face a world of sickness and doubt and we have sin and fear. And one of the things we need, we, have, we need a lot of things, but one of the specific things we need is endurance. Uh, the author said back in chapter 10, verse 36, he says this, for you have need of Endurance. I believe your, your series may be called Enduring by Faith. So this is appropriate, right? He says, this is what you need. You need endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And endurance is the ability to bear up under difficult circumstances and keep going. I think we all need that. It may look different in each of our lives, whatever those diff difficult circumstances are. But we all need the ability to bear up under those hard circumstances and keep going. And the author's writing to a group of people who need that. And so one way he tries to like fan into flame their endurance and give them, them the energy to keep going is he tells them stories of great faith of people who came before them. He's inspiring them. And stories resonate with us. Uh, one author, Francis Spufford, he said this, he says, we don't have an argument that solves the problem of the cruel world, but we have a story. And that's what Christianity gives us. It gives us this big story to help us make sense of like, why are things the way that they are? Why do I feel the way I feel? Why, why do I long for the things that I long for? And in this big story, that's where you find your own story. That's where I find my own story. And that's what he's helping these people do. And he's getting kind of long-winded like us preachers do by the time he gets to chapter 11 and 12, and at least he's self-aware. He's like, I've been writing for a while. And so if you look back in chapter 11, verse 32, He's been telling all these stories of people in the faith, and finally he says, you know, what more shall I say? Uh, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets. He says, those are some big stories. I'm not even going to tell you those stories. I don't even have time to tell all those stories. Like, I'm running out of paper. I'm running out of time. And so he's going to wrap up his stories. And he comes to this great turn in chapter 12. If you look in chapter 12, 
verse 1, he says this word, therefore. And all that really means is, hey, in light of everything I just said in the whole book, but especially chapter 11, in light of everything I just said, here's what this means for you. And he gives his ultimate example at the end. And remember, when the New Testament was written, or the whole Bible at that, there were no chapter breaks. Like, this is one letter. So if you look at chapter 11, just keep reading into chapter 12. This is one argument. It's, it's a continuing argument and teaching that, that goes on from chapter 11. There's no break. He's not changing the topic necessarily, okay? Now I want us to read it that way. If you're, if you're looking in your Bibles, you'll see the, the context. And in the book, he's been calling this people to faith and a life of action with exhortations, right? The whole letter. Actually, uh, something fun to look back on later. You can do it now. In chapter 2, verse 1, 3, verse 1. 4 verse 1, 6 verse 1, all start with the word therefore. And there's some other therefores in there too, but you see what he's getting to. He's constantly like, therefore, this is what this means. Therefore, this is what this means. And now he's reaching a climax in chapters 12 and 13. And here's what he's ultimately going to say. He's urging us to, to keep going with Jesus, keep going for Jesus, and ultimately keep going to Jesus. That's it. Keep going with Jesus Keep going for Jesus and ultimately keep going mysteriously to Jesus. He's saying, don't grow weary, don't grow faint-hearted. And I just ask you, I mean, the text kind of confronts us with that question. Is that where you're at this morning? Everybody took like a deep breath somewhere in there, right? Are you weary? Are you faint-hearted? Right? The Lord wants you to know, and the author of Hebrews wants you to know that there is grace for strugglers and there is grace for stragglers in Jesus, and he wants us to keep going. And so I'm going to read this text this morning. I know you guys typically uh, keep standing for it. I'm just going to read it this morning from chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, if you want to follow along with me uh, in whichever way you can see it. And I believe it's going to be on the screen, okay? Verses 1 and 2 from chapter 12. Here's that word. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us Run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen. Can you say amen, church? Uh, I want to look at three points this morning. Simply this, run the race, lay aside, and looking to Jesus. Okay, so let's look here. I mean, like a good preacher, I mean, just like Jesus did when he taught the author frames his teaching in a metaphor. He uses a, an illustration. Jesus did that a lot in his parables, right? And he saves this, this one for his final example, and it's really kind of like a picture of the Olympic Games, which we have coming back this year in a few months because they were canceled last year. It's, it's timely. And this is, I feel like this is one of the most helpful metaphors of what it means to, to walk the Christian life. He says it's like a race. The Christian life is like a race, but it's, if you notice, it's not just any race. It's not like the 100-meter dash. But this is a race that requires endurance. And maybe you haven't raced in a long time, but if you think back to elementary school, or maybe you race all the time. I don't know your life. You might go on the street and run races. But maybe you can relate to running a race and coming out of the gate way too hot. And it catches up with you pretty quickly. I, in December, I ran a six-mile race. I'm not a huge runner, but I ran with a friend, actually a co-pastor, and thankfully I had him pace me. I stayed right beside him hip to hip so that I didn't die one mile in because I promise you I would have. And, and that reminds us of the Christian life. Maybe if you've been in the church for a while or, or been a Christian, you've had some Christian friends throughout the years, maybe you've 
you've seen some people close to you who, who seemed to come to faith and they were on fire for Jesus and then a few years later they're nowhere to be found. And that cliche kind of rings true that we say sometimes. It rings true in this regard that it doesn't matter how you start, start so much, but it, it matters how you finish. And that's true when it comes to the Christian life. That's the question I think we're confronted with early on is are you going to finish well? Are you going to finish well? The Apostle Paul knew this in 2 Timothy. He's writing to this young pastor, Timothy. In chapter 4, verse 7, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith, and so there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness. I imagine. I've never ran a marathon. I hope I never run a marathon. I have no plans. I don't know how life or the Lord or Satan, I don't know who would put me in a marathon. But either way, I can't imagine being in one, but I can't imagine anything more tragic than dropping out of a marathon at like mile 23. And, and maybe, you've, maybe you've started to fade. Maybe somebody dropped out at mile 23. I heard some deep conviction over here a second ago. Sorry. Maybe you started to fade. You know, in your spiritual life, maybe you're slipping back. You've been running, maybe you're slipping back. COVID slipped you back into isolation. It kind of forced us a little bit, but you've kind of stayed isolated. And you've been attracted more to worldliness, and you're kind of wasting time. And instead of living a life of faith and following God, you're kind of circling the wagons for self-protection, and you're building bigger barns, and you're storing up things on earth like Jesus talked about, and your heart is getting, actually, it's shrinking as you age. And as I thought about this text, I just said, I don't want to end that way. I want to finish well. There's so many questions when you think about this illustration about the Christian life being a race. One of the obvious questions is, A, are you running the Christian race? Which leads to another question, well, what race are you running? Because in a way, when you think about it, we're all running some race. And in our Western society, some of us are just really busy running what sometimes we call the rat race. Right? We, don't, we don't have time for our souls because we're filling up our schedule. Often we're filling up our schedule with really good things. But that can be deadly if it leads you to neglect the most important things. Which is what Jesus says. He says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What race are you running? Are you running the rat race? Are you running the race to climb some sort of corporate ladder? Are you running the race to try to earn people's approval? Good luck with that one. Are you trying to run a race to outrun suffering in this world and hard things? We're so busy, we pack our schedules so full, we run from one appointment to the next, one event, one kid's activity to the next. Again, not bad things in and of themselves, but at the end of the day, sometimes they leave no room for spiritual life. And so this is a call to take inventory of your life. For a minute to say, well, what race am I running? Like, what path are you on, and where does that path end? We're so busy, sometimes we don't have time to kind of reflect and trace out, like, I'm on a path, where would that end? What, like, look at the traje trajectory of your life. It only takes a few minutes of, of self-reflection to maybe have a good idea of, like, where does this end up, where I'm running? The author tells us to think about these things, but he also says not any race course will do. Uh, in 1980, Rosie Ruiz won the Boston Marathon. A pretty awesome achievement. You can Google it and see pictures of her. She won the Boston Marathon. She's getting celebrated and everything. The only problem is, later they found out she disappeared on the course and she magically showed up a half a mile from the finish line. And she won and they found her out and they stripped her of her title and everything. You can't run any course you want. 
I mean, you got to run the course that's been prepared. Somebody goes out in a race, like a 5K, and they set up signs and cones and all of that to mark out the course. And the author says the same. Look, he says, we are to run the race that is set before us. There's, there's a shape to the race of the Christian life. Right? It's one of faith and repentance. It's one of picking up your cross and following Jesus into hard things. It's one of forgiveness and mercy of trusting God and not giving up. It's been marked out by God. It's been marked out by the life and work and death and resurrection of Jesus. It's been marked out by the lives of those who've come before us. All of chapter 11, the race has been marked out. And there's some really challenging parts that are uphill. And there's some nice parts where you run by the lake and you catch your breath in the Christian life. Moments of just pure grace. But the truth is we grow weary, right? We don't always feel like running. We despair because suffering shows up at our door. We, we doubt God seems absent sometimes. I think a lot of times the, the, the psalmist says that, which is re- refreshing. God, where are you at? If you feel that way, you're not alone, right? And the author, that's why he says here, he says, let us run the race. Right? Like I ran right beside my friend, hip to hip. Right? We don't run the Christian race alone. And smart runners, that's what they do. They stay in a pack. Like nobody, if you're a smart runner, you don't just take off on your own. And the same goes for the Christian life. And that's why Paul, if you notice in the New Testament, he's writing letters to entire churches. I believe Fennel mentioned that earlier about, you know, discipleship. You have to be ingrained with the people of God. This is God's design. The race is a group effort. And even still, right? Even still we grow weary. Even when we come to church and we show up and we go to our groups and all of that, and we grow weary when we're not being encouraged. You know, watching sports during COVID was so sad. I mean, there was very little sports. I was watching sports like ping pong, things I never thought I would watch. You know, I just needed it. I started fiending. I'm, I guess, I, I don't know. It revealed something about me. But I, 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 it was so sad, and I started to lose interest, and I realized one of the key ingredients as to why I lost interest in watching sports over COVID is because there were no fans. Because I made fun of the fake fan noise at first, and then I realized I loved it. I needed the fake fan noise pumped in. And now that baseball stadiums are getting packed and all of that, you'll notice there's more intensity to the game. The athletes are saying, you know, like what a different experience it is when fans are present. And that's how we're wired, right? We need encouragement. Thank God for encouragers. Let me just say that right now. Encouragers are vastly underrated. If you're an encourager, good for you. Keep it up. If you're not, become an encourager. How about that? We need encouragers. And the author knows this, and so he says, we're surrounded. He starts there in chapter 12. He says, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And almost all of the theologians and commentators say, this gives the idea of everyone in chapter 11 cheering us on. That's that's the great cloud of witnesses. He says, all those people, we're surrounded by them. He says, there's a sense in which Abraham and Sarah and David and Moses, everyone who finished the race, they're standing at the finish line watching us and cheering us on to a certain degree to keep going and to finish well. Jesus hinted at that. He said, when a sinner repents, there's joy in heaven. Like they're tuned in to the race. Do you see the Christian life as a marathon? And there's actually, you know, there's a lot of grace in that. Maybe you've had a rough couple last miles and you've blown it and and it's a mess. Well, you know what? That's bound to happen, A. And that's not the whole story. It's a long race, and so the author says, hey, keep going. You're you're not alone. Stay in the pack. Check your pace. Take it one mile at a time. It's a long race. 
Or maybe this is just a wake-up call. Maybe you've gotten off course and you've sat down and you've fallen asleep and your heart and your spirit and your soul is numb to the things of God and you're not motivated or energized. You're not seeking Him. And so in a sense, the Lord is coming along through this author in Hebrews and He grabs us and He shakes us and He says, hey, get up and run. You're in a race. Get back going. There are people with you. The Lord's with you. Let's go. But He also reminds us, He's honest, right? And, and, and He wisely reminds us that there's hindrances along the way. It's not a, an easy race. Uh, I have three little boys. They're ages 10, 9, and 6. And recently I picked them up from school, and you just pull the car up, and they all jump in the car. And two of my boys got in, and one of them never showed up. And that never happens. It was my middle son, who's 9. He never showed up, and the teacher or whoever said, hey, you need to pull in this parking, lot, or parking spot over here and just wait on him. And so I waited. And I waited, and I couldn't really get out of the car because I got my like, kindergartner in the car and my other, other boy. And we waited and waited, and all of a sudden, about 10 minutes later, he comes literally hopping out to the car all the way because he had tied his shoes together so tightly, literally no one could get them untied. <laughs> and I'm just like, dude, like, dude, are you serious right now, man? And I just waited, and he hopped. He hopped all the way. I'm like, well, first of all, you could have just popped the shoes off and picked them up and walked, but he, that's, that's what he did. Daddy, I just couldn't get them untied. I, well, I had to do what I had to do. <laughs> and similarly, like the author says, there's things that can trip us up and slow us down as we run this race. Some of us run the race like we got our shoes tied together like my boy. And he says, you know, we have to lay these th things aside that slow us down if you look there in the text. Really, there's two things, and, and most commentators say there's really two different things. First, he says, lay aside every weight. Lay aside means take off. Take off every weight. I don't know if you've ever ran with, with, a, with a sandbag on or a weight vest or something like that, but I mean, it's not easy to run. It's brutal. You have to take it off to, to run well. Actually, I, I went backpacking for the first and only time a couple years ago on the Appalachian Trail. I was a rookie, and when I packed my backpack, I put like my Kindle in there, it's like a first-generation, like, 14-pound Kindle. Like, I'm going to read at night. These big, heavy sandals and, like, extra snacks and stuff like that. And, and man, it, it, it crushed me. It killed me. I, you get 20 miles in, and you're like, what am I doing? Uh, I learned that real backpackers actually take their toothbrushes and saw them in half to save every ounce. That's how hardcore they are. And, and I made fun of those guys. I was like, what losers, man. But you get 25 miles in, I promise you'll feel the extra ounce. All right? Like day three. You gotta, you gotta put it off. And it's true for Olympic athletes too when they're training. They have to say no to a lot of good things. A lot of good things they love to take along the way, but they can't. They have to put them off. Things they enjoy because they will hinder their ability to get in the best shape possible, right? They're tuned in to the race, to the goal at hand. And as we travel the Christian course, there's a lot of good things that weigh us down. Great things, but, but, but the author says you've got to lay them aside. They can be finances. Finances aren't bad in and of themselves, right? Uh, leisure, hobbies, but they can slow down our spiritual growth. They can hinder our progress. As a matter of fact, they can take us off course a long, a long way. So just some self-examination here. What might be weighing you down that you need to, to throw off? Pastor Sinclair Ferguson said, the question you need to ask as you, do that, as you do that, as you look and take inventory of your own life, don't look at that thing and say, well, what's wrong with it? I'm allowed to do it. <laughs> what's wrong with that? It's fine. He said, that's actually a sign of spiritual immaturity. You're just 
you know, trying to see like what can I keep getting away with. Really, the, the question to ask as you do that, you know, examine your life of what you need to put aside, ask is, is this helping me know, love, and serve Jesus? Is this going to build me up as a Christian or is it going to draw me away? Not what's wrong with it, what's wrong with it, I can do it, I'm allowed to do it, but is this drawing me closer to Jesus or is it drawing me away? Because even the gifts of God can become hindrances, weights that slow us down in the race. He says, lay aside every weight, but then he says, and the sin which clings so closely. I feel like that first one's easy to identify, easier. We can you know, take stock of our lives and, and, and eliminate temptations on the outside of ourselves. We can manage our time better, do our devotions more faithfully. We can steward our gifts and our resources more effectively for the kingdom and all of these things. That's one thing, but it's another thing to then look inward and address the sins that we harbor. That, that's, that's a harder work in the ones that we're not even aware of because he says these are sins that cling. And man, sin clings. That's a true descriptor. We got a puppy. I don't know why. We got three little boys, and we say, that's, let's get a puppy. I mean, why not at this point, right? And, and, and no matter how many times I kick him off, he's right under my feet on my leg. Like, all I think is Psalm 139. If I ascend to the heavens, you're there. If I go to the depths, you're there. Everywhere I go, dude, you're, you're there, right? And, and, and I'm quoting scripture to him, trying to change his heart. Uh, you know, how, how true of sin it clings. It's always right there. I mean, I can come out of a great worship service. I can be singing, you know, on the way to the van. And before I even get to it, I can be snapping at my kids or grumbling about something. Because sin clings. And we have some sins we're so comfortable with, we don't even notice they're there. Right? Irritability and gossip and materialism and jealousy and all of these things. Things that we say, those are bad things, but man, they feel good to indulge. The sins that are hindering our growth and killing our spiritual life most effectively are the ones we're not even aware of. And so the author, he's exhorting us. He's saying, hey, to reach the finish line, to run the race well, you've got to do some inner work, some repentance. You have to turn and look inward and be sanctified, like go in the spiritual weight room and start to get fit. That's part of the race. I mean, Jesus said that himself. It's a sobering passage. It's, it's very confrontational. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Because it's better that you would lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. He's saying be ruthless in putting these things aside. John Owen, one of the Puritans, said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Right? Slowly, secretly, that word clings actually can mean constricting, kind of wrapping around us invisibly. That's scary. And yet left to ourselves... Without, if we're not vigilant in our spiritual life, that begins to happen. And so again, he's calling us. He says, hey, it's a race. It's a marathon. There's grace in that. But hey, beware. Do some introspection. And he's calling us to spiritual awareness, to put ourselves in the way of God's means of grace, his word and prayer, and to surround ourselves with Christian friends and people we trust who can speak into our lives, who will allow that we would have the humility and the security in Jesus to allow them to speak into our lives, to point out the sins that are clinging to us that we don't even see. And that takes courage. So this isn't like a fun field day race. I used to love field day. I mean, it, it, there's moments of fun, but there's work we have to do while we're running. And thankfully, the work is to lighten, lighten our load, to throw off our weights and our sins to, the psalm says, to cast our cares 
upon the Lord and he'll sustain us. There's more. We're constantly, that's kind of like repentance. It's constantly casting these things off. Our worries, our fears, our anxieties, all of these things, our unbelief, our grief, taking it to him. And yet the truth is, if we're honest, if we take a breath for a minute, this feels impossible. Because if the results of the race depends upon our ability to run it well, if the results of the race ultimately depends upon my ability to effectively put off all my sins that hinder me on my own, which by the way, I've tried many, many times and I'm still struggling. If, if the results of the race depends upon that, then I'm afraid we're defeated before we ever step on the track. Because at this point, we're tempted to just turn to our own inner resources. I say, amen, let's go home. You say, okay, well, I guess I'm supposed to dig down deep and just try harder. (laughs) We resort to techniques and spreadsheets and self-help and willpower and all of these things. And recognizing this, Charles Spurgeon, this preacher from the 1800s, he says, we're compelled even before we take a step in the running to bow the knee and cry unto the strong for strength. Because if we're honest, we, we know how quickly we run out of gas. How easily we settle for temptation or get lazy or run off course. Or we despair and we lay down and we give up. And at this point, it's almost like we're thinking, who will help us run this race? And the author has skillfully set us up this way. Right? He, he calls us to run the race that God's laid out for us with endurance, to throw off the weights and the sins. We get encouragement from those who came before us. We run together. These are all good things, but he knows the true key for running and finishing well is right there in verse 2 where, where he says, looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus. Because what we look at determines our direction, right? What you look at determines your direction. If you don't believe me, next time you walk or run, just stare at your feet the whole time. See where you end up. Uh, don't do that, right? It's not going to end up well. Maybe fun to watch your kids try it. I don't know. I would probably do that to my kids. What we look at determines our direction. It governs our direction, and that's why a good runner, he's, he's looking up ahead at the finish line, and the author says the only way you're going to run well and endure and lay aside sins and idols and keep going and finish is to constantly, that's why we meet every week, right? constantly look to the one who ran the race before us to, to, to the one who ran the race for us and who mysteriously even runs the race with us. Looking to Jesus. You don't lay aside sin by constantly looking at your sins. You lay aside sin by looking to Jesus. And by, as a byproduct, you begin to lay sin aside. Right? I mean, one, one famous theologian said, for every one look you take at your sins, take ten looks at Jesus. And you'll notice you start laying aside sin. Remember old Peter, he started to sink. I love Peter, but he took his eyes off Jesus. When he stopped looking at Jesus, he looked at the winds and the waves and all the other chaos and the what-ifs and the worries and the fears. He began to sink. Where are you doing that? I can't can't tell you how quickly I sink into fear and self-preservation and worry and all of those things when I take my eyes off Jesus. And it happens like 50 times a day. It's constantly look back to Jesus. He says, look to Jesus because first, verse 2, he says, The reason we look to Jesus, one, is He's the founder of our faith. Do you see that in verse 2? He's the founder of our faith. In other words, He's the one who put us in the race to begin with. Like we wouldn't even be in this race if He hadn't called us and put us in this race because it's not like we were out looking for Him. We didn't wake up. You know, it doesn't say in chapter 12 here that Abraham woke up in one day and said, I'm going to change my life. (laughs) Right? No, go read Genesis. It says God called him. God showed up 
God put us in the race. He gave us the ability to follow Him. One old hymn in the church says, My Lord, I did not choose you. No, that could never be. My heart would still refuse you had you not chosen me. The mystery of mysteries, that He would seek me out, the lost sheep. Like if we were the founders of our faith, it says He's the founder of our faith. If it says we were the founders of our faith, if it said that, we would be proud. Because if we can find a way to be proud, we will. And we would bang other people over the head with it. And we say, I put myself in the race. Why don't you get yourself together and put yourself in the race? But here he says, it's, he found us by grace. And the only appropriate response, if that's the reality, if he's the founder, if he's the only reason I'm in the race to begin with, is humility and gratitude and worship. Thank you, Jesus. And if you're a Christian, maybe you remember that time. Maybe you haven't thought about it in a while, but you, you know, maybe you remember that time when you weren't looking for him. He found you. And he saved you. And he called you to himself. And he gave you a new heart. And maybe you ran after him for a while, but maybe your eyes have wandered and it's taken you off course. Well, today, in his tender grace, he calls you to look again. He calls all of us to look again. You know, lectures. He doesn't lecture us. He says, are you kidding me? Get your act together. No, that's not our God. There's no lectures. There's no condemnation. He's a father who loves to find us again and again and forgive us again and again and restore us again and again. But he's not only the, the founder of our faith, some of, some of the translations say he's the author of our faith, but he's also, thank God, he's the perfecter of our faith, which means he's the finisher of our faith. Right? He starts, a, starts it and he finishes. God doesn't start the work and put us in the race and say, good luck, up to you to finish it. Hope I see you at the finish line. No, Jesus makes things complete. Philippians 1.6, Paul says this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's good news. He finishes what he starts. Isaiah 46, 4 says, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, I will carry, and I will save. Amen? Sometimes we sing the hymn that says, it's his grace that brought us safe this far, and grace will bring me home. He's the author and the perfecter. It's not, it's not an if, but a, but a when. Because the good news of the gospel is Jesus ran the race before us perfectly in every place that we failed. Even if we had a thousand chances at running the race, we would blow it every single time. Right? There's still a call to run the race well. There's a call to put aside sin. Absolutely, all of those things. But that's the whole point of the gospel is that we couldn't do it, so Jesus came and did it in our place, in every place that we couldn't. He never sinned in his life. And then he went to the cross and he took upon himself the weight of our sins. The text here says he endured the cross, despising its shame. And if you remember, at the end, right when he died, what did he yell out? It is finished. That's not just his race, but he was actually securing the salvation of his people. In a real way, the work of salvation was complete. Our salvation was complete. And that's why it says he's seated at the right hand of God. He's, that's what you do when you're done with your work. You sit down. And that gives us hope. Because he endured, he can bring us with him the rest of the way. So the author is saying, hey, run the race, but remember salvation is by grace from start to finish. He calls us, he carries us, he brings us home. That's the promise. God's not going to leave us, 
you know these subdivisions they started and then the market crashed and it was stood like halfway done for like the last 10 years? You haven't seen these? They're out there, okay? That's what we look like now. Like halfway incomplete projects. And the promise here is that God's not going to leave us the way we look right now. Right? The Scripture's saying don't despair. The race is long. Sin clings closely, but He will make us new. He will finish what He started. He always finishes what He starts. So are you running the race? As I finish here. Jesus completed the race for us. It says for the joy that was set before Him, the joy of hearing His Father say, well done, good and faithful servant. The joy of bringing His children home and the promises, the same joy awaits us now. And by the Holy Spirit, we actually enter into that joy now. And so here are these words of this old hymn that I used to sing growing up. It says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Right? Look to Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look, him, look full in His wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Let's look to Jesus right now together. Will you pray with me this morning, church? Lord, thank You. Uh, you are a God of grace. And I thank You that you, you speak to us and You teach us not in big abstract terms and things that are, just, that, we, that are hard to understand, but You come down and You get on our level. Like we're children, because we are Your children. And you say, hey, it's like this. It's like running a race, and you've got to put off the weight, and you've got to keep seeking Him and looking to Jesus. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come and you would fill up our hearts. You would enable us. You have put us in the race, Lord. You promised that you will bring us home. And so, God, uh, meet us in that place right now, no matter where we're at. God, maybe we've fallen off to the side and, and we've grown weary or faint-hearted. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would call us back this morning as we turn to you. And we look to you, Jesus, that you would continue to work in our lives, Lord, uh, as we run this race together. Thank you that we're not alone. Thank you that you are with us and you always finish what you start. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.